What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by John Stolness of the Good Fights. He hosts a very popular Phillies podcast. John, good evening. How are you, sir? I'm good, Chase. How you doing, man? I'm good. Um, so is the city over Bryce Harper yet? I, I don't think so because I saw today a artistic drawing where it was half Bryce Harper, half Allen Iverson, and it was basically like the answer 2.0. <laughs> so I think um, we got a ways to go before Bryce mania uh, subsides in any kind of serious capacity. Yeah, no, I think MLB's Twitter feed did that, and the NBA's Twitter feed reacted in a kind of a raised eyebrow emoji or something like that. But no, it's it's definitely still insane in Philadelphia. I think they said uh, that uh, merchandise sales on Friday, or was it Saturday, that were, were up 5,000% over the same day last year. Um, and uh, the, the retail outlet Fanatics said that Bryce Harper's jersey sold more than any other professional athlete's jersey in the first day of its sales ever so i think philadelphians are a little thirsty right now for for bryce harper they're swallowing up the content like crazy and he he's still dominating talk radio he's he is on at the front of everybody's mind on the tip of everybody's tongue in philadelphia no it it hasn't diminished everybody's still talking about it yeah and it it turns out signing good baseball players uh does good things for your city yeah, Who good for the brand, thought? no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, and that's the thing. We saw so many teams this offseason, Chase, not sign good ball players and, and yep. try and talk themselves into not doing that. You know, hey, we shout saw out to a the lot Braves. of good You can call them by name. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, frankly, the Braves should have done something more than re sign Nick Markakis. You know, there's still a couple guys out there that could help Atlanta and some other teams too. I mean, it's just it's it's funny that the Phillies and a handful of other teams like the Reds and um, uh, some other so the Padres getting Manny Machado really stepped up this offseason. And uh, it's, it always makes you wonder why some teams who are on the cusp, like the, like the Cubs, don't do more. Well, I, I, I don't think we have to wonder, right? Uh, we know. <laughs> it's, it's that um, they would rather save money. <laughs> That's all yeah. it is. Like yeah. they would rather, I think the majority 
of front offices and i've had this conversation with a bunch of different people about this where it's like uh, the census that i've gotten the consensus excuse me is that it's just i think a lot of these front offices and these younger gms and you have a young gm too um mr clintack uh-huh. is like 38 years old um has the same pedigree that aj preller and all these other guys have where they went to an ivy league school they have their uh, degree in economics they played a little in college but mm-hmm. I think there's like this arms race to win a title while spending the least amount of money possible. Like, I think that is the goal for right. most of these teams. And these owners love that. They're like, wait, I can save money while also winning a title. And that is uh, that's a tough thing to navigate and kind of legislate out of the game. Because if you're the Indians and you think that you're going to win the AL Central, regardless of whether or not you have Trevor Bauer and Corey Kluber on your roster and you can just play hardball with Francisco Lindor and you just trade away Jan Gomes and all this other stuff and you can still win, then you're going to do that. You're like, well, uh, why pay somebody who may not work out when we can still be just as maybe just slightly worse and still contend? It's it's a tough thing. But you have an owner that said he was going to spend stupid money. So shout out to you because he finally <laughs> he fulfilled his promise, which um, it's kind of funny to think about because I think most fans, like even a couple of years ago, be nervous about their owner saying something mm-hmm. like that. But because the appetite is so strong for like a third of MLB fan bases for their team to spend money that I, I imagine you have a better sense of this than me being in Philadelphia, but that that is a good thing to hear from your owner is that like, yeah, we're going to spend a lot of money this, this off season. Well, we'll look at the last three teams that have won the World Series. The Boston Red Sox had the highest payroll in baseball last year. The Dodgers have been to the last two World Series. They didn't win either one, but they've spent more money than any National League team the last two years. The Astros are not a cheap team by any sense of the, a stretch of the imagination. Neither are the Chicago Cubs. I mean, all the teams that spend money, generally speaking, get to the postseason. You have a random team here and there, like the Royals, and you know the Twins get to the playoffs every once in a while, but the last time the Twins won anything was 1991. So, I mean, yeah. spending money it's not on good players, you, it's, yeah, it, it's really hard to sustain it. The, the last team to do it is the Royals, going to back-to-back World Series. It's very hard, and I get it, you know, that the playoffs are a crapshoot. Um, you know, you, you spend money to get you to the playoffs, and then you could be out in a five-game series. That's absolutely true that in a five-game series, a team like the Oakland A's could upset the New York Yankees. And we've seen, you know, that, that can happen. But generally speaking, and, and the other thing with the Phillies specifically is you have to take this offseason and, and look at it from a larger perspective. If you just look at this offseason in a vacuum and say, yeah, the, man, the, the owner came out of nowhere and said, we want to spend stupid money. This team's been on a diet since basically mm-hmm. 2013. They have specifically not spent. They have specifically maintained roster and payroll flexibility with this very offseason in mind and with two 26-year-old potential Hall of Fame free agents in mind. And so when you're talking about spending stupid money, they spend it on a generational talent who hit the free agent market sooner than is typical for players of that caliber. Yeah. And that's why, that's why it makes sense. That's why a 13-year, $330 million deal makes sense because he's not 32. You know, mm-hmm. he's 26. You're going to get all of his prime, you're going to get five to six years of his prime, and then maybe another couple of years on the back end of his prime. And you can live with the last three years, especially probably because the designated hitter is coming to the National League, too, That's at true. some point in the next few yeah. years as well. So you factor all that stuff in, and it's not stupid money. It's, they've waited for this. They've lined this offseason up. This has been coming for years, and it just, you know, it was time. 
Well, it was also like a huge risk because as the winter kept going on, I mean, it's easy now that he signed, but like just a week and a half ago, we were all like, oh God, are the Phillies not getting either of these guys? Like, is that going to happen? Yeah. Are the Giants going to swoop in or the Dodgers? Because um, I talked to Bill Plunkett of those who registered last week and he was adamant that Bryce Harper was not going to be a Dodger. And then when I saw that report after, I was like, this is interesting. I wonder if there's a lot of just like a lot of weird reporting coming out from like agents and everything else where it's just like there's some sort of disconnect of what's going on with Bryce and then he signs and it's done and then uh, I I was thinking that it was good for the Nationals for this to keep drawing out that Bryce would just be like all right screw this I'm just going back to Washington um but ultimately he uh, went to a rival in the NL East but I uh, I don't know. I think it was interesting. And I think how this played out for them uh, has gone great. I mean, still getting Segura and trading for JT Romuto, who has just kind of fallen by the wayside. We just are, I don't think people realize how good he is and how much of an upgrade he's going to be. The huge trade. Yeah. And yeah. Bryce is getting the headlines right now. But I think people need to be aware that Real Muto is going to be a very, very valuable piece to this team in that he is an exceptionally good catcher in a league where there's not many great catchers anymore. He will stand out yep. and he's going to he's going to be an all star with Bryce. And um, yeah, I just they, they took a huge swing this offseason. I think it's fair for me to say that their rebuild has not gone quite according to plan. Um, with some of these young guys that have come through the pipeline, but this is something they had to do because of how last season went kind of, and this fan base was getting antsy because like you said, since 2013, they haven't spent like they used to. But the thing is, if you're a Philly fan, you're like, well, I know I can trust this ownership group because I know they have spent in the past. Like that Ruben Amaro run, I mean, they still spent, like they were in the top five payroll wise year after year after year, even after the dynasty was really over, you know that once they buy in, they're going to buy in. So I think if you're a Phillies fan, you should be like, all right, well, we're probably going to be in the top five in payroll for the next 10 years, which is cool because that means you're probably going to be in the playoffs a lot. It doesn't guarantee a title, but it guarantees sustainability. It guarantees sustainability. It guarantees relevance. And the key will be, the problem was with the Ruben Amaro era was that they didn't develop their own players in the minor league system to mm-hmm. supplement players when they had to move out. They had to keep buying players. And the idea here is, okay, you make a big splash here and there, but the idea is still to grow from within. And the Phillies spent also a lot of money and a lot of time uh, reorganizing their hitting instructors in the minor leagues this year, uh, hiring the driveline folks to to basically take over uh, the the minor league uh, hitting instructing. And that's a big thing because, you know, eventually you, you can't, you can't have a $250 million payroll. You're going to need to supplement Bryce Harper in his later years and some of these other guys with the young guys that come in, or at the very least use them as trade capital. But if you run out of good young players, buying everybody also doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But So finding that balance is why the Red Sox have success, why the Astros have success, and the Cubs, and, and all these different teams that are year-in and year-out contenders. And you're right, as far as knowing that you have an owner that is willing to pony up the dough, it is a nice security blanket to know that, listen, even if we have some young guys that struggle, that don't work out, the, the prospects don't blossom like we hope, we do have an owner that will that will spend some money. They're not, I do still think, I, I want to say this, I do still think Matt Klintak was making most of the decisions this offseason. Okay. Even when it came down to the final negotiations with uh, Scott Boris, Britt taking it down from a 15-year deal to a 13-year deal and working out the final aspects of the trade. Matt Klintak is a very conservative general manager. 
just like a lot of the other young guys. This Mm -hmm. Harper thing was just a very special case. And I don't expect the Phillies to sign to um, until Mike Trout becomes available. If he doesn't sign an extension, I don't expect the Phillies to do something like this again. It's only going to be for very special circumstances. Interesting, because that was something that I wanted to ask you. It's in my notes here of just like, is this going to be, are they, is this their big splash or are they going to dip back in next winter? Are they going to, is there something else where they're like, all right, uh, Franco's not playing third base for us forever. Um, we're going to dip back in and see what we can do. Um, the outfield's basically set right now. I mean, I guess it depends on what you think of Reese Hoskins at first and Cesar Hernandez at second and, um, and the starting rotation, which I want to ask about later. But, um, so you, you seem to think that it's going to be more of like, he's just the foundational piece along with Real Muto and um, they're going to continue to build with the young guys to uh, push around um, their two stars, um, both in right and at, um, uh, why am I blanking? Oh, on, at catcher. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think they want to sign Real Muto to an extension. And so I think they have... You have to after what they gave they up. They have, <laughs> uh, giving up Sixto Sanchez and Jorge Alfaro, you'd like to get an extension yes. out of that. Um, and I think they will because, you know, Real Muto wants to play for a winner. He's going to love playing in Philadelphia. He's going to love playing with Bryce Harper and Reese Hoskins and McCutcheon and all these guys. I mean, that, but McCutcheon's only here for three years. And so um, I don't know how long Odubel Herrera is for the Phillies. Uh, Cesar Hernandez has uh, Scott Kingery breathing down his neck. So some of these positions are spoken for. Uh, the, the rotation's young. So, you know, I, the Phillies do have to kind of take this a year at a time and see how some of these things play out. As far as big splashes next offseason, you know, I could see if some of these young guys like Nick Pavetta and Vince Velasquez don't work out, I could very easily see the Phillies jumping in on the starting pitcher market and going after uh, Verlander or Garrett Cole if and when they become available or, you know, going after Chris Sale if he, if he becomes available and, or getting pitching through a trade. I don't think they're done in the free agent market. As far as getting somebody like Anthony Rendon next offseason, I think he's going to sign an extension with the Nationals, but they could. They could go after Rendon. They do have that flexibility. I do think, though, that Mike Trout is kind of the big fish. And, you know, with Harper in the fold and still room flexibility-wise with the Harper's $25 million AAV, that's pretty low for an elite player like that. They can do it. They can afford Trout if and when he becomes a free agent. And I don't think that's a guarantee. But I do think if Trout becomes a free agent, Philadelphia is his number one destination. And I know the Phillies would love to add him. So any moves they make next offseason will be done with Mike Trout in mind the following offseason. I love to break news in this podcast. You heard it here first, folks. Mike Trout of interest to the Philadelphia Phillies if he becomes a free agent. Is that, is that news? Did I break? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's news exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Did you know he was actually from the Philadelphia area? Yes, it is and widely is known. He uh, comes back to yeah. A big Eagles fan. Yes, he's mm-hmm. buddies with Carson Wentz, comes back to Eagles games all the time. Absolutely. What do they talk about? Can you imagine sitting on a sitting like on a conversation between Carson Wentz and Mike Trout? Nothing against well, them. They talk about hunting and fishing. It, it's hunting yeah. and fishing. They talk about hunting and fishing all the time and what it's like to be a, a huge professional athlete. But I, I mean I, I imagine okay. they're both pretty simple guys, you know? Yeah. Trout and Wentz are they're they're simple dudes. They like to hang out with their family. They like to be at home. They yeah. And they're, you know, they're nerds of their sport. They like to work out and practice their sport and practice their craft. And so, and, and, and hunt and fish. That's basically it. 
I want a podcast with them so bad. I would love to listen to 30 minutes between them. I just like <laughs> Rob Manfred might, his head might explode in anger of this yeah. is what you're giving me. Yeah. Um, so the last thing on Bryce, are you at all surprised that Bryce Harper is a Philadelphia Philly or, or like, would you have bet prior to uh, this winter that it would be Machado and not Bryce who was the end, end all be all here or, um, was this just kind of how you expected it to go? Honestly, I wasn't. I honestly, logically, it made all the sense in the world for the Phillies to get one of these guys because the feeling was they would outspend everybody to get one. Um, but to hear them talk at the beginning of the off season, it they they tried to throw some cold water on it just to lower expectations. And so I just never envisioned the Phillies being able to get either one of these guys because the Phillies, it's been a long time since they landed a free agent like that. Um, I, at the start of the offseason, like everyone else, thought that their number one target was Manny Machado, given that they tried to trade for him last year, that he had connections with a lot of the front office guys from uh, their their time, from Matt Clintech's time and Andy McPhail's time in Baltimore. Um, But as the offseason went along, and and Matt Gelb of The Athletic wrote a great piece detailing like step-by-step, week-by-week, month-by-month of the negotiations this offseason with both guys. It came out today. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal reading. And, and you find out at, at a certain point, the Phillies switched their focus from Machado to Harper. And by the end of the process, no one in Philadelphia was even thinking about Machado. It was all Harper, 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 Harper. And, you know, I again, logically, going to the Giants never made any sense to me with him mm. because he wants to win. Why would he go to a team that's, on the downside of their winning cycle now. I mean, they're not going to be a playoff team for the next three or four years. And the Dodgers, everything you were hearing was that they didn't want to give him the the Stanton plus money, that the Phillies were the only team that wanted to do that. And so, you know, but by those last couple days, I really started to doubt it. I really didn't think it was going to happen. I expected any minute for John Heyman to pop up with a tweet that said Bryce Harper to the Giants. And for all the logic in my... okay. Yeah, because, I, well, I mean, I, or the Dodgers, you know, but I, it seemed like See, the I was still were really going nationals. Up the team over the last day. I was just like, I the never nationals thought the Nationals gonna... were in it. Okay. The Lerner now, family what, what, loving what? him was huge for me, where I was like, I wonder if the ownership just steps in and are like, sorry, Rizzo, we're doing this. Like, what does he want? 13? Fine. Whatever. Yeah, but when they, uh, you would have, you know, I, I think at a certain point, we're closing the book on Machado and you saw a bunch of articles come out in the Washington Post the last couple of weeks leading up to Harper signing where players were bad-mouthing him and that the team would be better without him and, and all this stuff. And people, people who don't, didn't follow the Nationals last year really closely don't realize how much the fan base soured on Bryce Harper in the first half last year when he had his mm. struggles and didn't yeah. run out some ground balls. He was not a popular guy in the first half last year. Winning the home run derby helped a little bit, but by the time the second half rolled around and Harper got hot, the nationals were pretty much out of it and it was a really disappointing season. And so it, you know, it it was, I think the nationals started to make a little bit more sense when the process took so long, but they were never in it this off season. As it turns out, when you look at the reporting, they never re-entered the fray at all in any way, shape or form. And they never even really made any hints that they were, it was just reporters kind of speculating. So to me, it was all the West Coast narrative. You know, everything was the West yeah. Coast, West Coast, West Coast. He wants to be close to Vegas. And that's what I was really afraid of, that he was going to mm. take less money or take a shorter deal on a higher AAV to go play near Vegas. And as it turns out, none of that was right. It was yeah. all a bunch of nonsense. 
I mean, there was no risk for him to go to the Dodgers. Like, the Dodgers made the most sense. Like, if he had just done that, because obviously there's going to be some weird stuff if you look at how they're um, going to do right field and first and, like, what's going to go on with Bellinger and everything. Like, there's just a weird positional um, issue in Los Angeles right now that they're going to have to figure out. But um, Bryce Harper mm-hmm. solves a lot of that. And if you, like, if you're telling me that you believe the Dodgers are falling out of contention in the next two to three years, I, I don't see it. Um, especially with their young guys getting older and older. So, like, if you mix Bryce Harper into that environment, I, I just, I, I don't know. It's it's less of a risk than uh, Philadelphia because uh, the NL West not, also not as uh, not as scary as what the NL East is right now because I think you've got four teams that are positioned to be pretty solid. Um, and then the Marlins, who knows? They might be a little frisky. You, you never know. The new uniforms. It's You can never underestimate the value of a new <laughs> uniform. Um, but yeah, I uh, I don't know. Um, would you say, though, that it sounds like there's no chance that you would suggest that Manny Machado would have been a better fit for this team for the next couple of years? I, I think at the, at the beginning of the offseason, I did think Manny Machado was the better fit because I mm-hmm. liked his defense at third base. Uh, but he became less important when they signed Gene Segura and when they traded for Gene Segura. And then after they traded for JT Realmuto, they desperately needed a left-handed bat in the lineup. And it was at that point that I started to realize that Harper was the better fit baseball wise. Harper was always the better fit as far as like the mentality of the city and his, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he's the face of baseball, the excitement that he would bring to the park. We know the Mm -hmm. fans would get more excited for him. In that respect, Harper always made more sense. But strictly as, as in a baseball sense, Machado was a better fit until they traded for Segura. And, but especially once they traded Real Muto, they couldn't have added another right-handed bat to that lineup. It would have been two through seven all right-handed. And that mm-hmm. would have been, I don't believe in lineup flexibility a ton, but I do believe it is somewhat important. And they desperately needed that left-handed bat in the middle of the lineup. So once, once that happened, I think it was once Real Muto became a Philly, Harper really then made the most sense baseball wise. So where does this put Philly in the NL East pantheon right now? How would you rank the top four? I think right now, if I gun to my head, I think the nationals are maybe a sliver of a tick better than the Phillies only because I believe in the national starting rotation more than the Phillies rotation. Yeah. Uh, I think the Phillies have a, have a, have more of an edge at the, at the, uh, position at the, the uh, offensive positions but it's not by much but it definitely mm-hmm. is a little bit better but and i think the bullpen i think the phillies have a better bullpen right now uh there were there were rumors out today that the nationals are considering craig kimbrell which would yeah. kind of even things out in the bullpen um brace might actually rotation. just blow their brains out this winter if craig kimbrell after all this also <laughs> ends up in washington and dallas keichel signs with the phillies there you go just keep, yeah keep... <laughs> i don't i, I I, think I don't think Keuchel's coming to Philadelphia unless he's willing to take a one- or two-year deal. So I'll ease your mind with that. I don't see that happening. I think it's more likely he goes back to the Astros than comes to Philadelphia on a short mm. deal. But yeah. that's just my guess. I don't know. Um, but I do think the Nationals right now, because of Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin, if you believe that Corbin's season last year was real and not just kind of a weird flare, I think the Nationals' starting rotation is – designed to win over a 162 game season more than the Phillies with Arietta follow, you know, Nola follow, uh, and then Arietta, Pavetta, Velasquez, and Eflin. Um, the Phillies ro- rotation has a lot of potential. I'm a big believer in a Nick Pavetta breakout year this year, but 
it's definitely less of a sure thing than Patrick Corbin uh, having another all-star caliber season. So right now I give the slightest of edges to the Nationals over the Phillies, but it's close. It's like a game separating these two teams. Okay. So then I guess you have Braves third, Mets fourth? Yeah, and then I have, I think I have the Braves third and the Mets fourth. And again, I have those two teams real close to each other. And frankly, the Braves and the Mets are only three games, two, three games behind the Phillies in my eyes right now. Mm. So, I mean, they add Keuchel, they add Kimbrell. You know, those are those would be big moves. I think they, I think the Braves have to get one of those two guys to, They're to getting narrow either. the gap. If Just I'm the Braves, up. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> I'm sure it isn't, but I mean, getting getting Keuchel, I think, would be better for the Braves than Kimbrell yeah. at this point. I, I am not a Sean Newcomb believer. Uh, I'm not a believer in Julio Teron. No, yeah. And so get and Kevin Gausman's already hurt. Fulte's getting a little dinged up. Yeah. Like it's already the the off season of hell. It turns out, um, yeah. young pitchers get hurt more at eleven. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Who could have ever foreseen banking on a bunch of young pitchers and Kevin Gausman in twenty nineteen could be a potentially dubious proposition? Who could have ever foreseen something yeah. like that happening? There. There's a scenario where the Brave season goes really wrong, and it's it's not a high likelihood, I don't think, but there is that that there, that scenario's out there. Well, this that division's good enough where, like, if apart. they get destroyed by injuries early, that's fair, like, because someone's gonna get hurt. Like this yeah. division, like, yeah. not all these teams are gonna be healthy, and like, part of the reason that you sign a lot of good players is because um you need to have a lot of people for a full season, and the Braves are banking on Nick Marcakis not being like I. The scariest thing about the Braves is they their season is going to be defined by Nick Marcakis what he was from the beginning of 2018 to what he was the end of 2018. Like, is it, is that who he is now is because he was just a very below average, maybe average player at his position in the second half, but he was so good in the first month and a half that it clouded his numbers and you just have to parse through that. Um, and then yeah. you have to wonder is Ozzy Albi someone who can actually hit from both hit lefties and righties because we saw yeah. like what happened down the stretch when he, he kept getting moved down the lineup and he lost a lot of confidence. And then, so one of, I, this is my guy. I like him. I used to work for him. Matt Chernoff, sports radio host in Atlanta. Good guy. He tweeted out a week and a half ago that Josh Donaldson was his MVP pick, and I almost threw my laptop out of the window. Uh, <laughs> not like That's Josh thinking. Donaldson has yeah. not played 150 games since 2016, I want to say. Um, he won MVP in 2015. He is 33 years old. He like the idea that he's even going to play anywhere close, especially with Johan Camargo backing him up. Like the idea that they're going to let him play enough games to even be in the MVP conversation is insane. He's already hurt. Big shocker there. Like what? Yeah. He's on a one-year flyer. He's trying to resurrect his career, and I get that. Like oh, contract year, all that kind of stuff. But no, there's a reason for that. Like the Blue Jays moved on because like this. Yeah, no, this this isn't gonna work. Like he's not. The idea that I have to believe that Josh Donaldson's gonna be back to that level. You're trusting so much. And Josh Donaldson being who he was two and a half years ago, three years ago, and then Nick Markakis having another career year and right, like that's, and then a really young rotation, and Matt Soroka's already hurt, and I love him, but like, God, yeah. there's just so many huge gambles that it's it goes back to the thing where like these GMs are trying to, and these ownership groups are trying to get away with um, being cheap on the on the edges and just seeing if they can make this work and string it all together and like maybe we can get by with Marquez maybe we can get by with a career year Josh Donaldson but like 
the MVP stuff, I was like, I, I I'm done. Like I, I can't do this. Like I Braves fans, like it just yeah. it felt very PR y. <laughs> yeah, like somebody in the somebody in the Braves office said, Hey, I got an, I got a column idea for you. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit Bryce of Bryce Harper? It, it, How about it, Josh Donaldson? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's hope as a tactic, which is generally speaking, not the way to fly. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan. Um you know what's something that kind of blew over? Uh, from about, uh, I guess it was like a month ago, Gabe Kapler. He was in a little bit of hot water. He's We've had mm-hmm. some weird behind-the-scenes stuff with him. Is his job safe? You know, I have, I've had Gabe Kapler on my podcast a couple of times, and, you know, I, I think Gabe is um, a smart guy. Uh, I think that um, last year was a, a learning process for him. He did a lot of things right. He also did a lot of things wrong. I think he's trying to bring a style of play to Philadelphia that Philadelphia fans aren't embracing yet. Although I think they'll be more open to embracing it this season because the talent level will be better and and you're a much better manager when you have much better players for sure. Um, But yeah, when you combine the off field stuff with the collapse last year and some of the very public um, uh, mistakes that he made on the field last year, and when you consider all the talent that's now assembled and everything management has done and ownership has done to bring talent to this team, if they get off to a slow start, if they get off to, you know, if they're 10 games under 500 in May or five games under 500 in May, you could very easily see John Middleton saying, this guy's not worth the trouble because you all, it's, it's not just the on-field stuff. It's, it's the off-field stuff. Who knows what else is coming down the pike? I know the Phillies have said that, Nothing that came out this offseason surprised them. It was all part of their vetting process. But, you know, who knows what else has happened from his time with the Dodgers. And this guy, Nick Francona, there's no doubt about the fact he's out to get Gabe Kapler. And he's lost this Francona guy has lost a lot of credibility in baseball because of it. So this is a guy who's worried about Kapler and the stuff that happened with the Dodgers is not unimpeachable. But that being said, if there are police reports out there and if there's other, you know, corroborating information and there's more out there that hasn't happened yet and or this team gets off to a slow start i certainly think the pressure on gabe kapler is enormous right now it is absolutely enormous the team has to win they have to get off to a good start and they have to win because the fan base has absolutely no patience for kapler at this point so i think i've decided what's happening here I've got some great news. If you'd like to go ahead and run with this uh, for three I'm, months from now. Yeah, I'm here. Buck All Showalter, right. next Phillies manager. He was, you know what? There was a lot of conversation about him uh, at the end of last year. And I don't think that Buck is the guy for this organization. Okay. Showalter. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Showalter okay. is not well-versed and not well-steeped in analytics. And the Phillies, over the last few years, have developed, if not the biggest, one of the two or three biggest analytical departments in baseball. It is an organization wholly run by analytics, by the, uh, by the number crunchers. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways. In, in some ways, it still is, you know, they, they, they do try to balance the use of scouts, but they've fired a lot of scouts over the last couple of years. And I don't know how well Buck Showalter would meld into an organization like that. I think if, if Gabe Kapler goes, I think there's a, there's a guy already in-house that they like in Dusty Watson, who was the AAA manager for a lot of years. He's the, the team's current third-base coach. They like him a lot. 
he, he came up with a lot of the players that are already on the team uh, through the minor league system. And I think he would be the choice of Phillies fans uh, to, to take over as manager of the team. So I think Showalter's a possibility. It's cert- he's certainly a good name. He's he a knows good manager. the front office. He knows the front office. That's right. He worked very closely with these guys in the front office. And if Showalter has developed an ability and or willingness to embrace analytics and use the stuff, then I could see that happening. But he's kind of an old school guy, and I'm not sure that he would mix with how everything is done now in baseball. He also just seems like a delightful human. Um, the letter he wrote Baltimore <laughs> after he got he he left, and just like how much he embraced the city and how much he invested in trying to bring them a title. Like I don't know, man. Like that guy, I would love for that guy to be my manager. I would love to just hang out with Buck Showalter a lot. He seems like a uh, interesting, fun, thoughtful guy. That maybe that's all I'm doing here. I'm just projecting why I want Buck Showalter in the Phillies, just because I want him back in baseball. Maybe that's all it is. Um, last thing, and then we'll go. Give me your most intriguing young Phillies prospect, because now the focus is on Andrew McCutcheon, David Robertson, Bryce Harper, Juan Segura. Like who, who in this group right now that's on the rise that uh, is coming up through the pipeline that you're still most excited about? Is it Mickey Mosiak or whoever uh, that center fielder is that was drafted? No, it's, it's not. It's not Mickey Moniak, unfortunately. Um, I think their number one pick last year, Alex Bohm, uh, has a chance to be a really, really good offensive player. Uh, I think if Michael Franco struggles this year, it, there's a good possibility if Alec Bohm has the type of season in the minors that we expect him to have this year. He could be the starting third baseman next year. And the Phillies, that's what I'm mm. talking about by like supplementing with young guys in the starting rotation, if not by the start of the season, maybe by mid season. And you get some, you, you go sign a, a cheaper veteran on a one year deal. till Alec Bohm is ready because I, I think that's a guy whose bat they believe in. He's a, a lot of, uh, a lot of outlets have him as with Sixto Sanchez gone as the team's number one prospect. And I think it's legit. He's a okay. really good hitter. Um, he, he didn't really get to play much in the pros last year after he was drafted because he got hurt. I think the team expects him to take a step forward. He could be, he could be in double A by the end of the year, if not triple A, depending on how well he does. I mean, they, they expect him to be a fast riser. Um, and if you're looking at arms, uh, Adonis Medina is the guy you hear a lot about. But the guy that I think really has the most juice, the most momentum right now is a guy named Spencer Howard, who they drafted a couple years ago, um, who has a great pitch mix. He, he profiles as a, a number two starter, big right-handed guy. The Phillies love them, some, some tall right-handed pitchers, man. They, that's what they draft. That's what they develop. And while the Phillies have struggled to develop hitters over the last few years, they have been able to develop pitching. And the Spencer Howard kid could be a really good number two type starter, if not next year, then the year after that. So those, those are the two guys who I, I am most excited about in the minors that are on the rise right now. Oh God! Does that mean Mickey Mosiak is he's out? He doesn't project as a star anymore. And by the way, let me go ahead and tell you this dude's full name: Mackenzie Matthew. Mickey is his nickname. Moniac. What an insane name! I, I'm sorry. But, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The problem with Moniac is he was the number one overall pick in a draft that was just insanely weak. Nick Senzel yeah. is the only guy out of that draft who was picked early that has a chance to do anything. Um, I mean, there, there's a couple of pitchers who, who got hurt. So, I mean, there, there's a, you know, there's a chance one of those guys after they recover from Tommy John uh, could, could bounce back. But um, it was just a really terrible year to have the number one overall pick. So he projects as kind of like a fourth outfielder, unless, oh, unless he turns on some, 
Well, I mean, unless he turns on some tools this year, I mean, he's going to be down in single A again. Unless he turns on some tools this year that we haven't seen so far, he just doesn't have the size. He doesn't have uh, the bat-to-ball ability that we were expecting. And we were expecting an elite defensive center fielder type guy, and he's only been kind of an average center fielder at this point. He's super young, though. So there's still a ton of time for him to, to kind of turn it around. But at the moment, he does not project to be kind of a star outfielder in any way. Interesting. Well, maybe if you could combine Dancy Swanson with Mickey Moniak, you get a everyday player. <laughs> yeah, they can pick and split time between the infield and the outfield. What is with Dansby Swanson anyway? I mean, he I know he, he uh, just he's not hasn't been baseball. able to put it together. Yeah. That's um, a problem. That's a problem he's, for y'all. He's just not gonna hit. I mean, his fielding's solid. He's still a good at shortstop. Him and Albies have a lot of chemistry. Like it's He's a fine. It, the thing that really bothers the me with the Swanson stuff is still the Anderson Simmons trade, just because that's like the one big miss. Um, and bringing it back to Sean Newcomb, yeah. um, it's just he's been awesome in Anaheim, and just Dansby is just not. He's not it, and that he's just not a good hitter. Like it's just he struck out a bunch, yeah. and he's just. He's never going to be a four or five war guy. It's just, he's not going to be a star. Like if he, he's one of those guys, we see this in sports all the time where if it's like you just took away where he was drafted and you just looked at the production to this point, you'd just be like, why are, what? Why would you pay this guy in the future? Why are we why investing you con- time in this Yeah, guy? why would you consider him part yeah. of your core? Like he's clearly not a core yeah. piece. And that's a, it's a complicated thing with Braves fans because he was just such a key piece in that trade to send Shelby Miller out. But yeah. it's like Shelby flamed out. And I mean, this kind of stuff, you don't win everything. And Tukey is actually going to end up looking yeah. like the, he's probably the more valuable piece um, going forward than Dansby. Yeah. Not probably actually. Tukey is definitely more valuable than uh, Dansby. But yeah. Yeah, that's exactly like Moniac. Yeah, uh, Dan Smith Swanson is your so. Yeah, that that's kind of what we have going on with Mickey at the, at this point. You're right. Okay. Last thing, I lied. Um, who is the next Philly who's going to appear on uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Is it Bryce? Because I don't know if I could see Bryce on Always. Sunny. No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's Reese Hoskins. Reese Hoskins is kind oh. of the guy who is the most kind of uh, he's he's a goofy white boy, man. He's just he's 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 that's he he would really i think love to do that whereas you're right i don't think bryce would do it i don't really see andrew mccutcheon doing it maybe real muto but i think real muto would be a little stiff hoskins would have fun with it so i could there i I think it's without a doubt reese hoskins okay there you go i would not have guessed that that's uh that's why we have you on the pod man to get the hard-hitting news stories like the phillies (laughs) so we learned a lot on this podcast we learned that reese hoskins is going to be the next philly to appear on always in philadelphia and we also learned um, folks, I hope you're sitting down for this and you can write it down. Uh, Mike Trout might uh, be a free agent. And the Phillies might have interest in a couple of years. Write that in ink. Yeah. How excited are you for that for the next, just if the Phillies are good and the Angels continue to suck? Like that's going to be, you can't yeah. even enjoy it. It's like, can we enjoy Bryce Harper? Why are we still talking about Mike I Trout? Said that, I said that exact thing on my podcast last night because that's exactly right. I want to enjoy these next couple of years. I don't want to be obsessed with Trout over the next couple of years, but it's out there. It's out there, and it's going to be there for a little while. So um, it would be exciting, no doubt about it. All right. Well, this has been great, man. You host a great Phillies podcast that you've mentioned, Hit and Season. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? No, just uh, um, we have a whole bunch of podcasts uh, at the Good Fight Podcast feed. So if you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you get podcasts, look for the Good Fight and uh, subscribe to the Good Fight. That's where you'll find Hit and Season, and we have a couple other podcasts there as well called Continued Success and uh, the Dirty Inning that I do with 
uh, some of my other good fight colleagues, Justin Clue, Liz Rocher, uh, Trevor Strunk, and uh, they all, we all teamed together to do a bunch of really good podcasts as part of a big network for SB Nation. So uh, check that out and check out thegoodfight.com if you want to find out what, uh, what's going on in uh, the Phillies, uh, Phillies world. All right, John, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time. Anytime, Chase. Thanks, man. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by a writer for 49ers Hub. He is someone very familiar with uh, my favorite coach in uh, in football, Kyle Shanahan. The one that got away in Atlanta that uh, I still think about all the time. But uh, Evan Sowards is here. Evan, good evening. How are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Uh, I have Dirk Cutter as my offensive coordinator. I have Grady Jarrett getting franchise tagged. I have um, questions about uh, the right side of the offensive line. I I have all kinds of questions. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Like I, It's weird to say this, but I will go ahead and say this. Uh, I would feel better if I was a 49ers fan going into the 2019 season than I would um, uh, being a Falcons fan. You know, it's funny. Uh, I have followed the Falcons for a very long time. You know, I was a big Michael Vick fan when I was young. And I remember, you know, black and red jerseys are a very easy jersey to like when you're a 49ers fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when Kyle Shanahan came over, it's like, I feel like we're always going to have that link in between the two teams. You know, I pay a lot of attention um, to your guys' team. You know, I was really curious about what was going to happen with Sarkeesian. We saw what happened. Not Uh, Not good at all. But I think Dirk could be a good hire, and you know I think Grady Jarrett played really well last year, so it's absolutely important to keep him on the team. Hopefully, it's a a franchise tag with good faith. But yeah, you guys well, got a lot. Usually, those are always season. in good faith, right? When does the franchise right. tag never get uh, dropped on someone not in good faith? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so you guys got a fun off season, but you know it it seems like there's a lot of optimism, right? Being a Falcons fan right now. Vic Beasley's back. What's there yeah. not to like? Uh, he's guy that that guy is he played incredibly well his rookie season uh you know i think everybody on that team in general had a little bit of a a special sparkle to him that season well it's interesting uh austin gale pff and i have talked about this because he wrote about tj watt uh the middle of last year and kind of like how he was like the new version of Beasley. And I think this is now a new common theme with just how many teams. And you know, this being a Niners guy is that I think three of your four uh, starting defensive linemen were first round picks in the last five years or so. So absolutely you teams are all investing across the board and defensive line, whether it's interior exterior, whatever. Um, That's just a, a position that teams are willing to invest first round capital in. And with that is going to come a lot of these bus types where they like have these blips and they just, for one reason or another, they just have this really good season, but you dive in, you're like, Oh, they had like, Nope. Their pressure rate was like one of the worst in football. And it was just more of like, they had a a, a high sack number, but it wasn't consistent. They weren't winning um, their battles very often. And it just happened to be when they won their battles um, as rarely as that was, they got a sack. So TJ Watt was doing the exact same thing that Beasley did where his pressure rate was terrible, but he just got a lot of sex. So it's just like this new thing where you're going to see a lot of these edge rushers and fans still get like wrapped up around, Oh, he has 12 sacks, So he must be good now and not look into what all goes into winning it over and over and over again. 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, honestly, as a 49ers fan, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I don't know if I could be any more well-versed at this point uh, than I than I am currently in the defensive line and the edge position and pass rushing in general. Um, Eric Armstead was a great example last year who he was extremely productive in disrupting the line and really creating a force. Uh, but there was almost no sacks, right? You know, he, he had like, I think, five mm-hmm. uh, right in, in that mid-tier range. And it was obviously no one was expecting anything from him from a sack point of view. he had a shit ton of, of pressures. Like that was – 100%. Idea. Yeah. And he was the second best graded PFF graded uh, defensive lineman on the team behind DeForest Buckner. And Buckner – Another pressure normally, guy. Yeah. Yeah, normally not a real, a real sack artist. He – I mean, granted, there was really no one else there to get to the quarterback, but he had like 11. So, you know, I, I'm going to say this. This is a, a Chase Thomas uh, podcast exclusive. Oh, yeah. This is something that that absolutely uh, no one could ever guess. But uh, the 49ers with the number two pick, I'm guessing, are going to take a defensive lineman again. Interesting. <laughs> well, I've heard there's a pretty good one who might be available considering that Kyler Murray didn't, going number one seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, yeah, Nick Bosa. I, I mean, Isn't that insane? Yeah. Wait. Isn't that insane? That Kyler's going number one? Well, so it's just like the whole dynamic. And, you know, once again, I'm getting really good at this every single year, knowing the 49ers are going to have a very high pick and kind of watching who's like, you know, positioned to really kind of be the top pick in the draft, right? We watched Miles Garrett and as a 49ers fan, me paying attention to who the worst team in the NFL was and who was going to have that pick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you're not familiar, the Niners ended up winning a, 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 a absolutely pointless game against the Rams at the yes, end of the season. I remember that. Yeah. So knock them out of getting Miles Garrett. Now, here we are again. The 49ers are really kind of gunning for that top pick and what seems an inevitable pick with Nick Bosa. And, uh, you know, they win a game and win another game. And then now they're kind of out of that top pick. But here we go. Kyler Murray, is he going to join the MLB? Is he going to join the NFL? What is he going to do? It's been so dramatic all season. And now it seems like there's a high chance that we get the best player in the draft who just so happens to be the exact position of need that we have at the top of the list yeah i mean any chance you have to uh make solomon thomas a (laughs) a historical figure on your defensive line uh you got to be pretty excited right when whenever you get a chance to make solomon thomas stand up and rush the pass you know rush the the passer from the outside you just got to do it Mm -hmm. 100 (laughs) percent. you know it's funny too because I think fans always kind of give themselves more credit than they deserve but this year they were like Put him inside. He needs to rush from inside. And and you saw kind of as the season progressed, they started to finally move him inside and he played better. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, it would obviously help having someone like Nick Bosa just going like you just can't have too many of these guys. But I also think there's another thing where it's like the Falcons have doubled down on this, too. Um, I promise we'll talk about well, this will be the last thing in the Falcons I'll talk about. But this is something that I was banging the drum about where I was like, I didn't want Calvin Ridley and he had a great season. He was a lot of fun and I enjoyed watching him. But it was more of like I wanted um, at the time I was like, I give me Josh Jackson or Jair Alexander. Like, I think the Falcons need to stop trying to develop these pass rushers. You promoted Marquand Manuel to be your DC. He's been the guy uh, just putting together this coverage unit. You've invested in Ricardo Allen. You've invested in Keanu Neal. Just double down on that. Like, I think it might be more important when teams just like realize, hey, 
pass rushing is not our strength. Like we can't do this. Don't worry about stopping the run. That shit does not matter anymore. So just look at like, okay, let's just have three or four really good corners. You know who really enjoyed having a lot of good cornerbacks this year? The Packers. They took two corners first. Like that was their thing. They were just like, you know what? This is a passing league. You can never have too many corners. They're going to get hurt. Robert Alford was terrible. Marcus Trufant cannot catch anything anymore like there is a huge problem like if you give me i'm not saying that jay alexander would have saved their season but you look at like the 49ers like richard sherman just being really good for them last year and like you look at like kind of the issues there where you're like well could you see them taking a corner at number two overall if denzel ward was there you you had that conversation but nick bosa was there and you're like all right we'll do that but like i do think there is something to teams just look in the mirror of like okay Obviously, this is not working. We've invested in McKinley, Beasley, and everything else. Just we got to stop pouring resources into this area and just focus on something else. And the other thing that's probably even more valuable than a consistent pass rush is just a bunch of really good uh, defensive backs. Like just stock it. So that's actually a good question, and I would I would ask because they say hindsight's twenty twenty. You're a great example. I think Calvin Rid- Ridley. Obviously, he had an amazing season. He, he, you know, fantasy-wise, I'm sure everybody that was a Falcons fan was a big, you know, that was a great pickup for them. But you look at it, and it's like, you look at Antonio Brown and Juju, right? They had an amazing season together. You look at Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones. They had an amazing season together. And I'm sure that the two of them playing next to each other really balanced each other out and allowed them to do so well. In hindsight... Would you have taken Jair, who obviously played amazing in Green Bay? Oh, absolutely. This year? Yeah, See, I don't and think that's why receivers matter. You have Julio Jones. I think he led the league. Like he just—he's a target machine. You have these guys. Like there's just Muhammad Sanu has been great. He's Mister Yak, and I just think you can find Calvin really types all over the place. And Justin Hardy's a great blocking wide receiver now, and he deserves credit for evolving his game on that front. But like, yeah, no. There's no reason to have a third. The offense was not the problem. That is not what you need to keep doubling down on. Like, if you have an opportunity to get a corner who um, is not Robert Alford, just great. And shout out to my guy, Bleedy Ray Wilson, who is probably going to stick around and I think might actually get a better opportunity after flaming out in Tennessee. I always liked him. Whenever I watch him, like, this dude does good things. Um, I, th- I think it's, a, it's, a, it's funny, you know, it's like, Look at Mohamed Sanu. Is there a luckier guy that's ever had a bad, you know, a luckier NFL pl- career to be able to play next to AJ Green and then go to Julio Jones, two I of the best receivers? That. Yeah. I mean, he Man, knew what he was guy. doing. He was like, I just, I know I'm not number one. He knew his like role. Like he just knows that his career is just going to last longer and he's going to be valued more because teams are going to paid so much attention to the number one that he's always going to shine but i mean he's good at his own thing he's different than julio and aj in a significant way but he compliments them well i love sanu yeah oh 100 um but this is not a falcons podcast uh Evan, this is a 49ers <laughs> podcast tonight and um the antonio brown stuff has kind of died down uh with san francisco but when that first came up and you heard about jerry rush talking to him and everything else like it it seemed kind of crazy at first and you go through like so they i think the most they've invested in their wide receiver capital right now is pettis um most of those guys are college free agents street free agents on that roster i mean you have pierre garçon marcus goodwin those were both unrestricted when they came um i don't even know if garçon's still gonna be on this roster this year is he gonna be around or is pierre garçon penciling in as a starting wide receiver for the 49ers in 2019 I don't know. Uh, we we thank him for his services, but he's already been informed that he actually is not going to be. Uh, he's he, he was essentially released. Okay, I, I, 
I don't know if they're waiting for a specific date to, to you know, file it within the NFL, but yeah, he's gone. Okay, so he's gone. So that's good. Um, but shout out to him, who I feel like has been in the league for 45 years. Um, yeah, he really made a great, great deal on his part, and it was, it was unfortunate because he played well. But yeah, the guy came in, got a bunch of money to really just get injured and, and rehab for a year and a half. Do you want AB? Would you be willing to give up what it would take? Because I think we've... We've gone down. We've we're through the looking glass now with the AB stuff, where people have overreacted enough to that. He did, he had an awful interview. Like I'm not disagreeing with the fact that he said some things. You're just like, are you trying? Like you can't at the same time be like, thank you so much to the Steelers organization. I'll always be thankful for everything you've done. And also, let me go ahead and torpedo my trade value in this interview a week later. After just like, are you like the? Do you just hate Kevin Colbert? Is that what this is? You're just like, I I I don't know what to do here. But um, I he's just too good. Like Antonio Brown is still like someone who's going to show up to work and be really good at his job um, for the next couple years minimum. And if you're a team that you think are just a year or two away from really contending, you pull the trigger on arguably the best wide receiver in football. Um, you just do that. And I, and you live with just, it's just all-star players are just hard to deal with. Tom Brady has his own issues. Like with Mr. Uh, old Guerrero and the water stuff, like he's a pain in the ass. Most superstars are pains in the asses. Like, that's just how it works. Like, you accept it. Like, it. I don't know. I think we've gone way too far on, like, who Antonio Brown is in the locker room and all this other stuff. Like, uh, how could you want somebody like that in your locker room? It's like, because uh, he's there every week, and he's really good, and he's just going to be good for a long time. So I've gone back and forth on this, but then you're in San Francisco where it's a rebuilding situation, and, I mean, you have the Rams sitting there. Uh, foreseeably um, for the next couple of years. And then you have the Seahawks who came out of nowhere, kind of, because I think a lot of people left them for dead, myself included with the Brian Schottenheimer hire. But then again, uh, he can't, he went full Brian Schottenheimer uh, in the playoffs. So shout out to him um, becoming his true self uh, in that Cowboys game. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I could see both sides if you're a 49ers fan, but what would you rather them do with the AB stuff? Well, it's complicated, right? There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of different sides to it. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. I think what you have to do is break it down in what's realistic. You know, currently there's a huge, you know, there was a huge article that just came out where essentially they said, and I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been Peter King, but it was someone reputable that said basically this uh, combine weekend. One of the major things was, oh yeah, excuse me, it's Tim Kawakami uh, with the Athletic, and basically said that it's either going to be Nick Bosa or Odell Beckham Jr. That's a 49ers uh, next year. In that, there was a look that they'd probably trade out if they didn't take Nick Bosa with, with the Giants, take someone at six, and trade OBJ. So that's a possibility. So you have to weigh that in when it comes to Antonio Brown. Um, the facts are this. They noted that there were three teams in contention. The 49ers were not one of them. Uh, in the initial, there was a large you know, amount of social media buzz. Antonio Brown um, obviously has been doing what he's been doing, but George Kittle, I think it kind of started with George Kittle saying, hey, come to the Niners, and Antonio Brown and him kind of like kept interacting, and then a, other, a couple other players got involved. And that just spiraled. Then, you know, there was the Jerry Rice poster and then them talking. And so there was a big thing. But I think that was a lot more hype than anything because at the end of the day, three teams talked about Antonio Brown. We weren't one of them. I still think it's a possibility. And I think as you get closer and you realize 
stock, kind of like you had mentioned. You know, if it's like a second round pick, something you have to do. I would never give a first round pick for a 30, 31 year old receiver, no matter how good they were. Yeah. And the reason, the reason why is this, you have to look at it in context. When Jimmy came in last year, you know, his first play was that touchdown pass against the Seahawks. And then he won those five games in a row. Last the 49, ago. excuse me, two years ago, yeah. but the four, the 49ers had the best overall scoring offense in that span. You know, Trent Taylor was that guy from Law Tech that we got in the fifth round next to George Kittle. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was catching everything on third down and converting a lot. We were getting a lot of field goals, you know, the touchdown passes and all that. But I think that was a good litmus test of what can happen if Kyle Shanahan's offense is working. And I think you as a Falcons fan are very aware of what Kyle Shanahan's offense can do if it's working. I don't want to talk about it. You know, and there, and we all, the, there's some low hanging fruit to be talked about, but I don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. In the context of what we're talking, though, is I think above and beyond, and I've been saying this for three years, the 49ers' weakest position is is edge. It mm-hmm. has been for a very long time. Next to that is going to be wide receiver. They haven't really drafted in a long time. Not corner. The, no, but okay. here's why, though. You have to look at it, and as far as what the way I look at it, you have to look at it in context of what's available. Richard Sherman last year showed that he will shut down an entire side of the field. They didn't throw to him still. Now, granted, people found out early on that all they had to do was just throw it to the other side, and Akella Witherspoon right. from Colorado got burnt, and he you know, had a horrible season. It was really bad. But once again, we also had no pass rush, so they had all day to throw. I think if you bring in a free agent and you use the $70 million in cap space we have for a serviceable corner to play next to Richard Sherman and then have Akello still, you know, learn from Richard Sherman, get better, all the above, I think that can give you a serviceable option. If the 49ers draft Nick Bosa or Josh Allen, and I mean this sincerely, the pass rush is going to go up significantly and something that they haven't had since Alden Smith. DeForest Buckner, even Solomon Thomas, and especially Eric Armstead, these are guys that have basically been disrupting the middle of the line for nothing to happen or come up of it because they know they can just double team in the middle. So now if you have someone like Nick Bosa or Josh Allen who are just going to destroy one side of the line, they won't be able to do that. Everything opens up these cornerbacks aren't going to be as needed to play, right? Like last year they had all the time in the world. You looked at like the, the time in which quarterbacks had to throw against the 49ers. It was a very long time. So that's my thought process. I don't think that the wide receiver position is going to be as necessary. If the 49ers can continue to be very efficient, converting on third down, George Kittle is now, you know, is he the best number in football now? I don't. I wouldn't say he's the best just because he had a great year. I would say he had the best year last year, and he's now top three. I think no he's question. the scariest for sure. Oh, do you, well, you know, I mean, once again, not to poke it's the bear, him but, or Kelsey, like Kelsey, what he does in the playoffs, like I, one of my favorite things is when I'm taking notes, like the Chiefs, what they did. Um, what was the why am I blanking? What was their first playoff game before the Pats? Who did they play? Why am I blanking? Oh, Colts. So yeah, I was sorry. Yeah, when they were playing the Colts, like. 
they basically just you can tell when teams just scheme to some just decide okay we're gonna scheme this area of the field to death and it was Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and Travis Kelsey had like 19 first down catches on like third down in that game and it was just one of those things where you just feel so bad for other teams where they're like they have no option for this Travis Kelsey is unguardable and just Mahomes knew he had Kelsey in his back pocket whenever he wanted and that's how you know you have like this elite ridiculous guy where it's just like third and seven because that's one of the most difficult uh times to be a quarterback it's just really hard to do third and long like it's just always going to be a difficult thing and that's like what makes and breaks a lot of quarterbacks and he just Kelsey is just a freak of nature and he's just so good and he's always open and I don't know how because he's getting doubled you'll see him come off the line and just it doesn't matter and I think George Kittle is like right there where it's just he's probably even more of an athletic freak I don't know if he's as good as like I don't it's tough it's one or it's one or the other you could sell me on both well, here's what you have to realize, though. And Travis Kelsey has got his NFL body, right? He's as good as he's going to be physically. You know, I think he's, you know, he's in his prime. George Kittle came in pretty skinny. He yeah. came in from a pretty small program. You know, he's bulking up. If you follow him on Instagram, he trains with um, one of the Packers tight ends and, you know, he really like I feel like what we're seeing is his athletic athleticism, but I don't think we have that polished receiver. You think of Michael Jordan when he used to, you know, when he finally got his inside game and he was just posting up on people and it was all cerebral. I'm waiting for that version of George Kittle where he also becomes intelligent, you know, physically gifted and just, you know, I'm trying to think of the correct word, but at the end of the day, it's just polished, right? Once he really puts everything together and gets his NFL body, like I think he's going to have that next step. And he just broke the all-time record. So I don't think we're done seeing him grow. Yeah, and that's a that's a scary proposition, especially when Kyle Shanahan gets to work with him for the next couple of years. Um, speaking of Kyle Shanahan, as uh, he is, uh, I consider him one of my father figures, um, one of my important father figures. But Kyle Shanahan... Uh, how would you how would you describe his first couple of years in San Francisco? Do you think they're turning in the right direction? Do you think the offense is moving in the right way? Because if you look at like uh, DVOA and stuff like that, like some stuff's better than the others. But like, um, I may be a little biased here, but uh, when he had Matt Breda rushing for over five yards to carry for almost a thousand yards and like a hundred carries this season, I was like, oh, he's coach of the year. It's done deal. It's uh, Nick so, Mullins and uh, Matt Breda, and they have a competent I'm, offense. Yeah, let's do this. I'm curious. I'm curious. Uh, who broke the all-time tight end yards record? Who broke that? Uh, Tony Gonzalez. No, no, no. It was George Kittle last year, right? Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, George Kittle broke the all-time tight end yard in a single season record. Oh, he okay. is the owner of it. That was yeah. So that happened last year because he was year. like he, Mr. Yak. He would just yeah. He is the official record holder for the most yards in an entire season he he beat Gronk's record Travis Kelsey actually broke it broke it last season too but Kittle won in the end um he's a fifth round pick yeah Matt Breda was undrafted he almost ran for a thousand yards last year he looked amazing right you look at you look at I mean bless their heart but like Nick Mullins CJ Beathard C.J. Beathard won't play for the AAFL or the A. Excuse me, the AAF. Some respect on their name. 
Evan. No, it's the I'm not. AAF. No, no, no. But CJ Bathard won't. When he eventually gets cut or traded and leaves the NFL, that will be the end of his career. Bless his heart, but he is not a professional football player. He might be a coach. That's, I could see them like immediately making and, him like like the Kafka stuff in Kansas City. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But that's but to answer your question about Kyle, Kyle did things last year that you couldn't tell because of the record that just should never have happened. Mm-hmm. A fifth a, a second year fifth round tight end should not have broken the all-time yards record with CJ Beathard and Nick Mullins. That should never have happened. But to your point, he's a genius. He is as good as 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 people say. And it's like the guy, you know, poor guy has to keep dealing with all of these setbacks. You know, yeah. he has to he has to deal with Jarek McKinnon blowing out his ACL. He has to deal with Brian Hoyer, who had at least played well enough before coming in and having one of the worst seasons of all time. You know, he has to deal with Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, blow, tearing out his ACL. It's like the guy is, in spite of all of these things, still been a very high-performing coach. So and I think the scariest thing about him and this 49ers team in general is I think when they burst on the scene, people um, need to be prepared. And it will be like what I'm going to monitor is the grading for their offensive line early this season. So you have McGlinchey. You have guys now that like this offensive line has all the makings of just if they if it gets that top five point, like you're like, oh yeah, they're here. I mean, that's what pushed the Rams is like the Rams had a top three offensive line. And it turns out when you give someone like Jared Goff, who is exceptional when he has a clean pocket time and you give someone like Todd Gurley, um, a great offensive line in front of him, like good things happen. And I think that's, and then you suddenly are like a juggernaut. And I think with Jimmy G, um, guys like Pettis, who just the downfield stuff that he'll have time to develop and everything else with the good offensive line that you're like, oh, the, this is coming. Like the, it, they're going to burst in the scene, not because of their offensive skill players, but because the offensive line has gotten enough time to gel, improve, and everything else. And then they're just suddenly running over teams. And the 49ers have like a set, the number two PFF offensive line before we before we know it. Yeah. And also, not to mention, like last year, we, we traded, or excuse me, we signed in free agency Wesson Richburg, which is the center from um, the Giants. And mm-hmm. he had one of the highest... Uh, PFF scores and then he basically played injured injured all year so you saw what happened to Matt Breida and and you know (laughs) I mean come on like the 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 running backs that ran for the 49ers last year was hilarious and every time you know whether it was Matt Breida or um, Alfred Morris or there was a couple other guys that were like just you know they were bodies they were you know they're practice squad bodies uh, they all played well. So I think when Western Richburg comes back healthy next year, Jarek McKinnon is going to be healthy next year. Jimmy's going to be healthy next year. Now, obviously, I'm a football fan, so I'm ever optimistic, as I'm sure everyone else is. But I think the 49ers will be the most exciting team to watch next year if everyone stays healthy, which is a big if. Yeah, Um I, but the thing is, like, if they don't, they're still going to be better. Um, their oh, yeah. issue is just the 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 NFC West is just it's tough, and um, I don't think the Cardinals are going to be historically bad offensively again. Like, I think they had like the fifth worst or third worst something offensive DVOA of all time. Um, I mean, it was, what do you think about Kyler Murray though? Yeah, I mean, I like Kyler a lot, and really, yeah, I like Kyler. 
I feel I don't know. This is I'm you know I'm not big on hot takes. Well, maybe I am a little big on hot takes. But let me just say this: I feel like Baker playing as well as he did last year is allowing. I mean, it's like at some point people are going to realize that height does matter, kind of. You know, you well, know, I don't think anybody's have... saying that he's not as good as Baker, right? Like, I think we all agree no, that Baker was saying... so much more polished and so much less of a risk. And I mean, he's what, like six two, two twenty? What was he? Baker's a lot bigger and taller. Baker and... Mayfield is like five. No, he was like six foot. I thought he was six two. I could be. No, wrong. no, God, no. Baker Mayfield was small. I think we're being. Let me. Maybe they're just being generous with this thing. I guess. No, 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 no. Yeah, because so he's listed as six one here. We're right in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not six one. That's like Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson is like what? Five uh, eleven. Yeah. Is Russell Wilson five eleven? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So so you know, and uh, that's just kind of my thing. I would agree that the NFC West is rough because the Rams, um, the Seahawks played so much better last year than anyone would have thought, which breaks my heart because I love seeing them fail. Mm-hmm. This was finally going to be the year that I got to talk a little trash, but of course not. Yeah. So it'll be an interesting season. I really don't know if there's going to be a more like what better storylines exist than in the NFC West. What's going to be amazing if we get if Kyler's good and we get Kyler, Jimmy G, Russell Wilson and Jared Goff for the next couple of years. That's a win win for all of us. I mean, not for you because you have to put up with these quarterbacks six times a year, but um That'd be fun as hell. Like, that's what I want. The, it, I like it when the NFC West is good. Like, during that rivalry between the Kaepernick and Russell Wilson years and just going through it, like... That's the we, best. Yeah, we want that. For whatever reason, it feels right when the NFC West is is strong. Well, and it was sure fun, right? Like, you saw all the commercials between Russell Wilson and Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick dressing up like uh, Robert De Niro in a scent of a woman or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, we need that back. I'm I'm right there with you. Um, and Kyle Shanahan's gonna he's gonna get there. Our our guy Kyle will will get them there. Um, are you worried at all about losing some of their key assistants? Obviously, one uh, recently dipped uh, to go to Denver. Um, are you at all concerned that Kyle's losing too much early on? No, no, not at all. And I mean, like the reality of it, of it is, is they kind of talked about it, right? They said, you know, I'm surprised that with us winning a handful of games, they still did that but mm-hmm. the team was well coached yeah and there was some bad circumstances that didn't really allow them to kind of show that in the win total but the team was still well coached you want good coaches on your team so by all means i'm not surprised i am interested though wes welker is going to be a 49ers coach right like miles austin is a 49ers coach yeah I, this makes I love no that. sense to me like that's like my 2009 fantasy football team all over again like you know, so I think at the end of the day, as long as Kyle Shanahan is the coach, the offense is going to be fine. I think the offensive assistance, you know, I don't know necessarily that there's a lot of weight in it. I'm more curious in what Robert Saleh does, considering he kind of had a bad year last year and then kind of put it together at the end. We were all as fans really expecting him to get fired and he didn't. So I think that'll be a big storyline to kind of pay attention to. If you're not familiar, he's got that Seahawks coaching tree background. You know, he was in Jacksonville. He was with Seattle as a uh, like a quality control coach. Yeah. So we're kind of just they trying to figure out from, like, what's Houston, next. Right? Wasn't that like yeah. another connection? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I, I'm not really worried as much about the defense. And um, I think the most interesting guy now on this roster is Dante Pettis, right? Because from weeks, I believe, 13 to 16, Pettis was the only receiver who generated a perfect passer rating and had at least 10 targets. It's pretty good. The guy, so, so once again, the, right, like this never-ending story for the 49ers, he was injured early on. I think it was like week two. And as soon as he got healthy again, and, you know, obviously it helped that Nick Mullins played pretty well in the end, Dante Pettis gets open. He's got some of the best footwork in the NFL. I think Chad Ochocinco had, had said some things about him on Twitter. Chad, you know, if you're, if you're familiar, has some of the best footwork period of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of his thing, right? He gets open. And so you kind of saw that at the end, you know, his, his route running and, his footwork was getting him open. There was production from him and still so much like so much to, to be sought after afterwards. Like a, the ball didn't get to him plenty of times when he was way open. And so I, I think you're, you've got a good point. You know, a lot of people talk about the idea of maybe like Hakeem Butler being a target in the second round or one of those kind of second round tier uh, receivers. I I would love that, but I, I think we have something special in Dante. It'll be interesting to see. I hope so. Um, I think he's he's really fun, and I think he's just one of those guys that if you didn't look at the numbers down the stretch, you don't know that this guy, if he's healthy, is going to be is going to be a beast. Um, the last thing, and uh, then we'll wrap up here. Do you think Jimmy G is going to be okay? Who is Jimmy Garoppolo in 2019? Is he a top 10 quarterback? Like, How do you see him coming back do we have to give him time it's gonna be a Carson Wentz type deal of just easing him back into the fold and he kind of has a rocky year how do you see this season going for Jimmy G so once again I am a fan so I will be a fan uh, but I will try and sprinkle some logic into it what Jimmy G was good at when he played with Kyle what was he good at he was good at getting rid of the ball incredibly fast right one of the fastest releases in the NFL Right. He was good at converting on third down. He was good at converting, uh, you know, and, and getting the ball down the field. I think considering the, the headlines that we're reading right now is that he's incredibly ahead of schedule. His recovery is going exceptionally well. And I think one of the one of the lines that someone said is everybody says this, but this is actually serious. He really is ahead of schedule. So. I think what I'm going to expect is maybe a, a, a rusty first couple of games, but no, I think what Jimmy's good at is, you know, his, his mind. I think he's smart like Tom Brady and that he really reads the field incredibly well. I think he gets rid of the ball quickly. And I think those things are going to happen right away. If Jerick McKinnon is fully healthy, no, he's probably not Le'Veon Bell, but at the very least, he's going to be a very good person to dump the ball off, you know, quick passes to the side on like a slant route. Um, you know, Trent Taylor was injured all last year and he was kind of, we used to make the joke third and Trent mm-hmm. because he, you know, he was always catching the ball and, you know, converting those third downs that first year with Jimmy and he's he had a back injury and he's fully healthy again. So if you're a fan, it's easy to hold on to these things and be like, everything's going to be great. 16 and oh, but I think logic, involved it's still realistic to say that jimmy's got really good weapons he's got really good uh pieces that are all healthy again we're probably going to bring in at least one wide receiver in the top end of the draft or free agency which is only going to make his job easier mm-hmm. and his offensive line should be better you know we mike Pier- mike pearson 
just recently signed three years, nine mil, a really realistic, really cheap deal for a good backup. And he started last year and he played well enough. So uh, he'll be competing with Joshua Garnett, who came from uh, Stanford, who was injured and didn't really play well and then kind of like came back and there'll be some good competition there. So as far as storylines go, everything is working out for Jimmy G. It would hard, It would be interesting to see things not go well. I'm expecting, I don't know, I'm expecting 10 wins next year. I mean, I don't think that's outlandish. If Jimmy Garoppolo is healthy and good and Pettis is healthy and this offensive line takes the next step and uh, Jared McKinnon's healthy just because of how perfect of a fit he is and just having him and Matt Breda is huge. And, and if I they get the Bosa, team, man. Yeah, and you have Bosa. And that, that pass if rush they get Bosa. Yeah, I mean, there it, there's an easy, easy avenue um, towards that team being 10 and six, I think next year, I, I would I'd be right there with you. Never doubt Kyle Shanahan. Um, hundred percent. And that, that's the point. Do you think Kyle Shanahan's going to go three years in a row with a losing record? No, I, I don't. Unless Jimmy Garoppolo gets hurt again. Like I think crossed, Kyle will it. go out on the field himself and throw the ball. If that happens, I think they're trading for somebody. If that happens, they'd be like, Nope, we're not doing this <laughs> no, again. Not uh, again. Yeah, no, you'll just he'll like how many games. Uh, this is maybe just a heat check right here, but, uh, how many games do you think they win with Ryan Tannehill this year? The 49ers? Yeah. If you brought in Ryan Tannehill and you said an experiment, how many wins could he get out of him? Because Adam Gates uh, at, almost got At 10. least eight. At least eight. Yeah. I think Tannehill's honestly got a bad rep, and I think Tannehill played really well at times. Yeah. I think Tannehill would probably take a lot, a lot more to learn the offense and get ready and all that, you know, that Jimmy G has already been afforded the time to do. But I think Tannehill could absolutely do that. I have a take for you. I know you like takes. I do. Tannehill is a better investment for Denver than Joe Flacco. A hundred percent. I don't understand this. Like Tannehill's being treated like like people are laughing at the Washington stuff. And like when Tannehill, his, his whole thing is he's injured. But all it's the same time. with Gates, though, right? Yeah, it was the same with Gates. Gates had a off awful run in Miami, but I didn't think necessarily that he was sitting there laughing, twisting his mustache, burning the place down. I thought he had a bad rep. Yeah, and I think the same was with Tannehill. It's insane to me that Denver for so long has had a stacked team and all they needed was a quarterback and they have gone to Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch, Case Keenum, and now Joe Flacco. And maybe Drew Locke. They hate quarterbacks. (laughs) They hate them. Can you imagine if you're Von Miller? Can you imagine if you're just sitting there like, dude, we, we just, we won a Super Bowl with the zombie of Peyton Manning. Please just get anything. I would have given up a first round pick for Teddy Bridgewater at, at the very least. Like just get me a serviceable quarterback. Yeah. I, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Sad, sad, sad times in Denver. Yeah. All right, man. Well, this has been great. I really do appreciate it. Um, is there anything we should check out for you this week? I know it's the off season, but uh, what can we check out with Evan at 49ers hub? right now well so the the 49ers have bless our bless their heart we got like 15 writers that are working hard every single day uh pumping out new content you know they don't just do 49ers related stuff so definitely check out the 49ers hub.com uh a lot of fun pre-draft articles you're gonna see a lot of uh player comps and player profiles uh for the draft and free agency coming up uh it our podcast the hubcast is going to be starting this week uh it is about that time 
And uh, other than that, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Evan Swords, S-O-W-A-R-D-S. I'm sure you'll link it. And it was a pleasure to come on and talk football, man. Thanks, buddy. I really do appreciate it. Let's talk again soon. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon, bud. All right. Welcome back to the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by Brew Hoops managing editor mitchell mar mitch mitch mitchell do, why did i just go mitch is it like because i watched old school recently that i just immediately went to mitch like do you what do you prefer do you prefer mitch or mitchell you know what nobody asks and i appreciate that you did i do prefer mitchell okay. uh because with the with the nickname mitch middle school is very unkind to me and that we'll leave it there okay <laughs> I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Um, so I apologize in that front. So this is, uh, I'm still, yeah. Uh, wow. Um, but anyway, you are a managing editor at brewhoop.com, a site that I read just about every day along with most oh, well, thank NBA you. sets. Yeah. Love brewhoop. I've been reading it for years. Um, and also rest in peace, uh, basketball. Uh, one of my early college uh, hoop sites that I read a lot as well. Not, same here, man. Same here. But we, uh, we do know that Jeremy is still kicking it in milwaukee he's just out of the blog game right now okay well bring him into brew hoop just keep expanding the coverage talking back into it not a bad idea yeah well you follow a team that um according to my calculations are pretty good at basketball they have a very good point differential i don't know if you've uh listened to anyone talk about uh the milwaukee bucks beating the crap out of bad teams and uh putting it on a lot of people and they take a lot of threes and they don't take a lot of twos. And this is a, a team that plays really good defense they had the number one defensive rating in basketball. But I want to ask you as someone who watches every game, what is it about this 2018, 19 Milwaukee Bucks team that makes them great? What is it about them that makes them great? Um, honestly, this is a little trite, a little cliche, but they play together. Everybody is bought in. Everybody has a role on both ends of the court, and it's been a long time, at least in Milwaukee, it's been a long time since we've had a situation where everybody knows what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to do it, and has actually bought into it, actually kind of put stock into it themselves and executes on it. Um, any of the uh, the members of Bucks Twitter will be uh, just cringe whenever they hear the the name Jason Kidd come up. Um, but that's the biggest difference between last season and you know all the years under the kid era and the new outlook on the franchise under Mike Budenholzer is that everybody is playing together. You've got Giannis, who can do things that very few humans can do on a basketball court, and then all the guys around him just fit. Chris Middleton does his job and does it well. Eric Bledsoe, Malcolm Brogdon, Brooke Lopez, all the way down to guys that you know spend more of the time on the bench than anything like Pat Connaughton or Sterling Brown or, you know, any of these guys to the point where even a longtime veteran like Pau Gasol is interested in coming to the Bucks because he's heard about what they've got going on and they've got down the precedence of something special because everybody is playing together. It's a really rare sight to see and uh, I'm happy to get a glimpse of it, even if it's just for this season. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, which, I mean, this team, if you go through, like you you joked about having basketball reference up as we got started here, it's like, if you go through all the different guys that they've already had play for this team this year, like, mm-hmm. they've had a lot of dudes, and yeah. um, 
depth was an issue for this team in the past, but I don't think you can really say that anymore. Uh, part of that is just better coaching and Mike Budenholzer is just getting a lot out of guys that we would not call um, or refer to as depth pieces like Tony Snell. Uh, there's just guys like that where he's just pulled like in a different situation that they probably aren't as valuable, but in this particular situation, they are. And I mean, even Malcolm Brogdon might be the best example of this, of just like his offensive rating, I believe is like 122 and the rating is like 108 when he's in the court. And it's like, that's like second to yeah. honest. It's just when he's on the court, this team is just, it, it's not as valuable as Giannis, but it's just, it's right up there. Like he is just a cog in this engine that works. Um, which makes the Bledsoe stuff so interesting because like when I think about those two in the backcourt of just like how this is going to work come playoff time and like how this defense is so good with Brogdon and Bledsoe, um, especially when they don't force a lot of turnovers, that's like one of those weird things where they're not actually that high in turnover percentage. Right. Um, it's really their only weak spot defensively. It, it, it's just kind of strange considering their personnel, but um, I don't know. Like, are you at all surprised that, that Brogdon Bledsoe, dynamic in the backcourt has worked so well? I, I don't really say surprised, but I'd be lying if I, expected, if I said that I expected it to go this well this soon. Uh, with Bledsoe, his calling card earlier in his career was his defense, his point guard yeah. defense, and he's definitely gotten back to that. Now, he's still a good distributor. Not great, but he's good. Um, he's very good attacking the basket on closeouts. He's a passable three-point shooter, which, you know, of course you would like, you know, they get better shooting out of the point guard position, somebody that handles the ball as much as he does, but it's enough. It's it's what you need. And then Malcolm Brogdon, what he's able to add is his versatility and his efficiency. You know, he's one of the few 50-40-90 guys in recent memory, as long as his percentages hold up, and, you know, has really good versatility on the defensive end between his length and his strength and his IQ, just overall. Uh, they, they do a really, really good job of keeping everything in front of them and running the defensive scheme to near perfection. I know you mentioned about the turnover percentage and how that's weird to think of with uh, the Bucks and their personnel, especially what they're known for with, uh, with all the lengths and athleticism they have on the court. But I think the major paradigm shift is that they focused on using their lengths to create bad shots for the opponent rather than stuffing up passing lanes or going for steals or stuff like that. So it's, it's, again, kind of going back to my original uh, original statement about everybody playing together and doing their job and staying within their role. Like, everybody is just doing the stuff that they've been shown is successful, and they stick to it, and they're really consistent. And uh, that's what both Bledsoe and Brogdon have offered this year. So it's more of like this is still who they they can be if they want to. It's just that's not what the Bucks want to do. And I mean, they're the best defensive rebounding team in basketball. And part of that is because, like you said, they're forcing a lot of bad shots and they're making teams yep. take bad shots. So they're not as concerned about gobbling up the offensive rebounds, but they are. Um, and it's also because they're just not a they don't have the personnel to be an offensive rebounding juggernaut. Um, just with Brooke Lopez and uh, Ersan Ilyasova and Nikola Mirotic and just everybody else around them. Uh, they're just never going to be that kind of team. But obviously that just doesn't hurt them. And defensive rebounding is just so good. And it's kind of indicative of what kind of shots they're forcing. Um, so that's, it's interesting. Do you think it was an ultimate good, ultimately a good idea to lock up Eric Bledsoe now? Um, or do you think that they maybe should have waited it out and seen what else is out there? And if they could have improved that point guard spot uh, this summer. So I really like Eric Bledsoe. I like what he offers, but, 
you know, it, it would be more than fair to admit the other side of the arguments for anybody who isn't comfortable with his extension. You know, four years is a long time in the NBA. Things change fast. He is in his late 20s. You know, he does have a history of, you know, lingering injuries that could affect his availability. And giving a guy like that who plays a really important position on a, te- on a team that doesn't have a lot of guard depth in terms of ball handlers. Like, obviously, Giannis and Chris Middleton can handle on offense, but they're not point guard defenders. And honestly, Malcolm Brogdon isn't a point guard defender either. So really, what this team has for now and for the foreseeable future is just Eric Bledsoe and for the rest of this season, George Hill, uh, as their point guard defenders. So it's it's fair to say that there is a little bit of uh, a little bit of concern about how that would work. But with the report that came out today, when the extension was fully signed, uh, finding out that that fourth year is only twenty five percent, give or take, guaranteed. It's only like three point nine million guaranteed on a nineteen point something annual salary uh, for the fourth year of that contract. Makes it a lot easier if things don't go well and he loses a step or two and needs to, you know, possibly get moved or just simply isn't contributing on that level anymore. Uh, the Bucks have a little bit of added flexibility in order to get out from under it. But all told, like, you know, Eric Bledsoe recently ran a record and saying that he finally found a home. Like he feels like he's somewhere he belongs and he's doing what he's good at and what he, you know, feels comfortable doing. Um, and if, you know, if Giannis is okay with it, which I've got no reason to believe that he isn't. You know, I've got no reason uh, locking up Bledsoe, especially if it's an overture for the rest of the summer that the team wants to bring the band back together. Yeah, and it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I wonder if there is part of what Boonholz are just kind of going back to the Jeff Teague years and him being in San Antonio with Tony Parker and Patty Mills and all those kind of guys where I wonder if this is more of his type of point guard where it's just like I don't want to have the superstar guy who needs the ball in his hands all the time and like this team ultimately maybe that messes with the rhythm and it's just like nice to have Giannis be that guy and not have to worry about a lead ball handler kind of taking too much of the shine away from him as he becomes an MVP uh, potentially as soon as this year. Um, I, I do think that might be part of it as well, just because Eric Bledsoe seems like he's someone who is very comfortable in his role in this offense and knows that Mike Budenholzer is good for his career. Yeah, definitely. And I really does kind of, I know you mentioned San Antonio, uh, and I think that it's one of the best possible things that Budenholzer took from his old mentor, Greg Popovich, is that the players that work best for him are players who are over themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you think about something about the Atlanta Hawk years? You know, I'm, not, I'm not exactly an expert on Atlanta Hawks history, like in Milwaukee Bucks history, but I remember Josh Smith was a major player on those Hawks teams for a while. But I don't remember Josh Smith being around during the Budenholzer era when they won 60 games with Horford, Millsap, Teague, Corver, and uh, the fifth. Their fifth starter is eluding me. You don't happen to know, do you? I mean, it's embarrassing that I don't know the fifth one. Tamari Carroll. Damari Carroll, yes, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are all guys that, you know, kind of similar to what we're seeing now from the Bucks. The guys who know their role, are happy to perform in the role they're asked to perform in, and are over themselves. You know, you don't have any other, not, not to use the term that's not fair, but you don't have any prima donnas on a team that want the spotlight for themselves. No, it's just a lot of veterans. It's a lot of guys who just know what they are. Like this, it's no secret that Malcolm Brogdon is like the perfect guy. Like, you know, Greg Popovich would love him. And you know that like, just got in there and he was like, Oh, this is my dude. 
like the president is uh, he's <laughs> this is the guy like i'm i love this guy and then just having Brooke lopez and you go back and through the rotation it's all vets it's Giannis and a bunch of vets yeah, I mean, Brogdon's only in his second year. Uh, and there's definitely No, some, he's a vet you know, now, by the way. Rotation. Malcolm Brogdon, oh, no, we don't qualify as a young sure. guy. He's, I think he fair. came out of Virginia at 36. So we have to be... <laughs> <laughs> the old be man terrible. game is strong. The old yes. man game is strong. I'll never fight But he's it. shooting like 45% um, from three. He's like, it's just... Yeah. It, he's a he's an anomaly, man. I, I don't get it. I, he, he goes out there. He does a job. Nothing phases him. He's not bothered by how much time is on the shot clock or whether or not he's in front of a hostile crowd is just, he just, he goes out there, he does his thing. He, you know, if you see him smile, that means that he's ecstatic, uh, but he's a steady guy. He's just, yeah. he's just nice and smooth. Was Powell a worthwhile move? Does he play? Like he's getting DMP CDs in San Antonio. Like, is he done? Or is it just like, is he just someone for emotional support? Like, what is he? I think he's around for death. Honestly, I don't expect him to be a major rotation contributor. Uh, I do expect him to be another big body when the team needs a big body. Like as far as, you know, current players on the Bucks, he's the only guy that comes close to Lopez in terms of overall size. You know, like, you know Splash Mountain is a literal human mountain, but uh, Gasol is no slouch himself. And so if and when they play against a team, say in the playoffs that has a guy like Joel Embiid, or his brother Mark Gasol in Toronto, or you know Al Horford if they need to throw some more size at Al Horford, which probably isn't the right call, but might be something they decide to do. Um, he's going to get some spot minutes, probably. I fully expect for both Miritich and Ilyasova to get more minutes overall at center. Honestly, Giannis himself might get more minutes at center than Pau Gasol. But uh, Gasol's been around for 17 years. like He knows the game inside and out. You know, he's got some time where, you know, not necessarily with Budenholzer directly, but, you know, time in a similar environment in San Antonio. And uh, and he's happy to, you know, chase a ring on a team that is, you know, surprising everybody by their not even just contention, but I'd go so far as to say they're the favorite to come out of the East this year. They're not my favorite. And this is where my Bucks has to has to end. Um so before the season, I said the Toronto Raptors were going to win the NBA Finals, and I'm That's sticking fair. to that. Um, Kawhi, late games, like he's still doing it again. Like he got an amazing role the other night, but he, them getting Marcus All, I think was super nice. Like Pascal Siakam's just like the ultimate role player. OG Anobi hasn't played that well, and he could still come on. Um, sure. Kyle Lowry hasn't been shooting well, and maybe that turns around. Like they get Fred Van Fleet back. I love the Jeremy Lin buyout signing. Like that was also they are they they can match the Bucks depth, and it might come down to like I just I I'm just so intrigued by what they do with Kawhi come the postseason because I think they've been holding him back, and I think we haven't even seen the best of what Kawhi is going to be this year, and I just feel like it's going to be disgusting come playoff time with Kawhi <laughs> and when they shorten that rotation and I think I I'm just so excited for Giannis versus Kawhi in the Eastern Conference Finals that's all I want I I want to see what that sure. looks like I want to see if Giannis not being able to shoot outside comes back to bite them I want to see if like like how Toronto defends them I want to see who they throw at him because they have the kind of bodies like I don't Giannis is kind of in that LeBron zone where it's like no one's stopping him but you can try and slow him down a little bit and I wonder right. if guys like OG and Kawhi even and Pascal Siakam, like the dudes that they can throw 
at Giannis, even Serge Ibaka sometimes. But like, if that's just like the 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 kryptonite for this Bucks team, because I think that they 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 should be favored over every team except Toronto. But that said, I I really want Toronto, Milwaukee, and I just I think uh, Toronto is just more equipped, and I, I just trust a, I trust a star like Kawhi more than I trust Giannis. I I don't think that's outlandish, and that, I can love them both, and I still think Giannis is MVP. I just I don't know. I can't quit Kawhi, and I think we're about to see some crazy, crazy postseason run from him. Oh yeah, the, the Eastern Conference playoffs, and especially in the second round, is going to be a bloodbath, and I'm very much here for it. And, and honestly, I do agree with you and your take on Toronto in terms of I I truly don't trust the Sixers. I don't come anywhere near trusting the Celtics. The Pacers are surprising in their persistence and hanging around after losing Victor Oladipo, but I don't think they have the horses to win a seven-game series. They'll make a series miserable for whoever they play, believe me. It's not going to be fun, but I don't think they're going to win a series. But to your point, Toronto is a fundamentally sound team that has the same kind of high-level talent than the Bucks have. They, they don't necessarily have the deep roster depth that Milwaukee has, but like you mentioned, in the playoffs, rotation gets shortened up. You don't need that same uh, depth in the rotation. One question I have about Toronto is how well they're going to be able to juggle the minutes between Gasol, Ibaka, and Siakam at those front court spots, especially if they want to put Kawhi at power forward for any stretches of time. Not that I think that's necessarily... I mean, they'll do that for sure. They'll they'll have stretches where it's like Pascal and Kawhi at the four or five. They'll have Gasol and Kawhi. They'll have like, and then they might go super big. I can see Kawhi at the two. Like, and then I I think they're going to do some overloading mega lineups for sure as well. Like, I think they have options. They just can do a lot of quirky, goofy things. I mean, the Bucks do the same kind of thing. Absolutely. And actually, when you say uh, quirky mega lineups, uh, the Bucks in their last game had the starting lineup, and they had played it, uh, you know, against Phoenix a couple of minutes as well, where they had Chris Middleton as the shortest player on the court. He's six eight. Chris Middleton, Giannis, Nikola Mirotic, Ersan Ilyasova, and Brooke Lopez all on the floor at the same time, which is a massive, massive, massive lineup. It honestly shouldn't work because. Ursan Ilyasova is not really quick enough, you know, much less to say anything about Brooke Lopez, but the sheer size that they can throw at teams, you know, isn't necessarily something that's going to bludgeon you on the offensive boards, but it is something where you've got Giannis plus four shooters, four good shooters, and they can create a bunch of space around them, and they're all massive humans. So I think there's more than enough wrinkles that Milwaukee can throw back at Toronto, just like Toronto could throw wrinkles at Milwaukee. Um, of course, I'm not going to back down. I'll be going to favor the Bucks over the Raptors. But, I mean, <laughs> hey, if, if anybody is going to beat the Bucks, the Raptors would be my choice to have the best shot at doing it. Okay. Um, well, that answers one of my other questions. Are you at all worried about somebody like Philly with Joel Embiid and the kind of matchup situation? I think we can go ahead and write off the, the Celtics. But is there anything about Philadelphia that's, that scares you with their size? I mean, to be very honest with you, I worry more about Boston than I do Philadelphia. Okay. I really do. I, I think Boston has the type of talent and the type of system that matches up very well against Milwaukee. Al Horford is, you know, he's got a couple of nagging injuries this year, but he's very good, very solid, very consistent. Um, I don't, I'm not really high on Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown for that matter, but they're both very good, very talented. Kyrie is, you know, for all the drama, he's an extremely talented basketball player. 
And they've got depth too. Whereas with Philly, Philly is an extremely hot, heavy team. Sure. Ben Simmons, very, 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 very good player. Jimmy Butler, JJ Reddick, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid. Like those are all really good guys. Really top 10 of their position at worst. I think for all of them, maybe Reddick is a little bit more borderline because he's a shooting specialist, but one of the best shooting specialists in the league right now. But after those five guys, like who do they have? Who's who's what's their death going to be like? What happens if any of them have to miss, you know, God forbid they get injured, but if they have to miss time, you know, staggering lineups isn't easy when you have to stagger all five of your starters, like sure. They've got the talent, but when that talent has to constantly shift gears between, Oh, okay. Well, I'm in the starting lineup, but you know, Simmons and Embiid are going to run the pick and roll. So I kind of have to camp in the corner, even though I'm one of the better players in my position, but okay, the bench is coming in. So now I can take it out an alpha roll again. Oh, well, Simmons is coming back in. So maybe I have to defer to him. I can see that causing confusion in small moments at the worst possible times, which is, you know, kind of why Philly hasn't broken into that upper tier in the Eastern conference that includes Milwaukee and Toronto. Like, you know, not, not to take away from their overall talents or their overall program, but you know, is this where the process tops out? It might be. Hmm. Well, last thing, and then, uh, then we'll get out of here. You've watched Giannis for years now. You've watched him grow. What has changed the most with Giannis Antetokounmpo um, over the last couple of years that you've watched that maybe other people haven't noticed who haven't been paying as close attention? Well, I can tell you this. At least as a person, he hasn't changed. He's a fiery competitor on the floor. And then when you get him off the court, he is like we're just one of the most lovable, sweetest human beings that you'll ever meet. Um, he's a constant teammate. He legitimately finds joy in the success of others. Uh, you know, there's a fun little running story going on right now with uh, Christian Wood, one of the uh, bench warmers essentially for the Milwaukee Bucks, and, and just he is Giannis's guy. Like every time they, they go at each other in practice and shoot around, and like any time that Wood does get minutes, which is really infrequent. Uh, like Giannis is the first guy off the bench to celebrate whenever Christian Wood does something good. Uh, and so that's just the kind of person that we're dealing with. And I think that deserves to be called out in terms of his game and how his game has changed. Um, I know I, I mentioned the, you know, he who should not be named by bringing up Jason Kidd earlier, but one of the few things Jason Kidd did well was have Giannis learn how to play inside and be an inside out player, not an outside in player. You know, they had him learn post footwork moves on the block, how to finish through contact. You know, not that Giannis was bad at it, but he got better at it. Uh, and then just developed him as a post player. So he's able to do a lot of things that he does now. And uh, just his ability to operate near the basket is the best of, you know, he might be one of the best finishers in league history. You know, he's only coming up on the end of his fifth season. He's already on track to become that level player. Um, but the, his, his ability to post up is something that uh, I don't think a lot of people see when they look at highlights of him running in the open floor or, you know, taking a center off the dribble and putting one on his head. Uh, he, he can do a lot of the dirty work, a lot of the little things too, uh, which has made him a complete player and made him an MVP candidate. 
All right. Well, it's going to be fun to watch uh, this Bucks team and how it all unfolds. All I want is Raptors, Bucks, and the Eastern Conference Finals. That's it. That's, that's all I want to get to. I want to see Giannis versus Kawhi because I think it uh, it will be a fun, fun bloodbath. And I'd love to I'll see Harris go at it against uh, Mike Budenholzer. And I think it'd be a, whoever. It, it's just it's going to be great, and I'm, I'm excited. But we still have to get there. Um, keep uh, Giannis in bubble wrap if you can. Mitchell, that would be great. Um, protect him at all best. costs. Uh, thank you so much. Is there anything we need to check out on uh, brewhoop.com before we get out of here? Oh, all of our game coverage is great. I'm actually working on an off-season primer, or a second part of an off-season primer that kind of goes through all the cap minutia and how the Bucks actually can bring back all of their current players uh, over the course of the summer and into next season, uh, hopefully after they hoist the trophy. All right. Well, there you go. Um, I don't know. I, I guess they can host the trophy for uh, for Toronto. It'd be a little weird for them to, to do that. But I see what you what did there. And I'll tell you what, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Mitchell. I appreciate it. Yeah, take it easy. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. And like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Thank you for your support. And we'll be back in another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.